Chapter 12 of An Introduction to the Principles of Morals and Legislation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Claude Banta. An Introduction to the Principles of Morals and Legislation. Chapter 12 Of the Consequences of a Mischievous Act. Shapes in which the mischief of an act may show itself. Hitherto we have been speaking of the various articles or objects on which the consequences or tendency of an act may depend, of the bare act itself, of the circumstances it may have been or may have been supposed to be accompanied with, of the consciousness a man may have had with respect to any such circumstances, of the intentions that may have preceded the act, of the motives that may have given birth to those intentions, and of the disposition that may have been indicated by the connection between such intentions and such motives. We now come to speak of the consequences or tendency, an article which forms the concluding link in all this chain of causes and effects, involving in it the materiality of the whole. Now such part of this tendency, as is of a mischievous nature, is all that we have any direct concern with. To that, therefore, we shall here confine ourselves. The tendency of an act is mischievous when the consequences of it are mischievous. That is to say, either the certain consequences or the probable. The consequences, how many and whatsoever there may be of an act of which the tendency is mischievous, may such of them as are mischievous be conceived to constitute one aggregate body, which may be termed the mischief of the act. This mischief may frequently be distinguished, as it were, into two shares or parcels, the one containing what may be called the primary mischief, the other what may be called the secondary. That share may be termed the primary, which is sustained by an assignable individual or a multitude of assignable individuals. That share may be termed the secondary, which is taking its origin from the former, extends itself over the whole community, or over some other multitude of unassignable individuals. The primary mischief of an act may again be distinguished into two branches, one, the original, and two, the derivative. By the original branch, I mean that which alights itself upon and is confined to any person who is a sufferer in the first instance, and on his own account, the person, for instance, who is beaten, robbed, or murdered, by the derivative branch, I mean any share of mischief which may befall any other assignable persons in consequence of his being a sufferer, and no otherwise. These persons must, of course, be persons who in some way or other are connected with him. Now, the ways in which one person may be connected with another have been already seen. They may be connected in the way of interest, meaning self-regarding interest, or merely in the way of sympathy, and again, persons connected with a given person in the way of interest may be connected with him either by affording support to him or by deriving it from him. The secondary mischief, again, may frequently be seen to consist of two other shares or parcels, the first consisting of pain, the other of danger. The pain which it produces is a pain of apprehension, a pain grounded on the apprehension of suffering such mischiefs or inconveniences, whatever they may be, as it is the nature of the primary mischief to produce. It may be styled, in one word, the alarm. The danger is the chance, whatever it may be, 
which the multitude it concerns may in consequence of the primary mischief stand exposed to, of suffering such mischiefs or inconveniences, for danger is nothing but the chance of pain, or, what comes to the same thing, the loss of pleasure. An example may serve to make this clear. A man attacks you on the road and robs you. You suffer a pain on the occasion of losing so much money. You also suffered a pain at the thoughts of the personal ill-treatment you apprehended he might give you in case of your not happening to satisfy his demands. These together constitute the original branch of the primary mischief, resulting from the act of the robbery. A creditor of yours, who expected you to pay him with part of that money, and a son of yours, who expected you to have given him another part, are in consequence disappointed. You are obliged to have recourse to the bounty of your father to make good part of the deficiency. These mischiefs together make up the derivative branch. The report of this robbery circulates from hand to hand and spreads itself in the neighborhood. It finds its way into the newspapers and is propagated over the whole country. Various people on this occasion call to mind the danger which they and their friends, as it appears from this example, stand exposed to in traveling, especially such as may have occasion to travel the same road. On this occasion they naturally feel a certain degree of pain, slighter or heavier, according to the degree of ill-treatment they may understand you to have received. The frequency of the occasion each person may have to travel in that same road or its neighborhood, the vicinity of each person to the spot, his personal courage, the quantity of money he may have occasion to carry about with him, and a variety of other circumstances. This constitutes the first part of the secondary mischief, resulting from the act of robbery, viz. the alarm. But people, of one description or another, not only are disposed to conceive themselves to incur a chance of being robbed, in consequence of the robbery committed upon you, but, as will be shown presently, they do really incur such a chance. And it is this chance which constitutes the remaining part of the secondary mischief of the act of robbery, viz. the danger. Let us see what this chance amounts to, and whence it comes. How is it, for instance, that one robbery can contribute to produce another? In the first place, it is certain that it cannot create any direct motive. A motive must be the prospect of some pleasure or other advantage to be enjoyed in future. But the robbery in question is past. Nor would it furnish any such prospect were it to come, for it is not one robbery that will furnish pleasure to him who may be about to commit another robbery. The consideration that is to operate upon a man as a motive or inducement to commit a robbery must be the idea of the pleasure he expects to derive from the fruits of that very robbery. But this pleasure exists independently of any other robbery. The means, then, by which one robbery tends, as it should seem, to produce another robbery are two. One, by suggesting to a person exposed to the temptation the idea of committing such another robbery, accompanied perhaps with the belief of its facility. In this case the influence it exerts applies itself in the first place to the understanding. Two, by weakening the force of the tutelary motives which tend to restrain him from such an action, and thereby adding to the strength of the temptation. In this case the influence applies itself to the will. These forces are, one, the motive of benevolence, which acts as a branch of the physical sanction, two, the motive of self-preservation, an agent of the punishment that may stand provided by the political sanction, three, 
the fear of shame, a mode of belonging to the moral sanction. 4. The fear of the divine displeasure, a mode of belonging to the religious sanction. On the first and the last of these forces, it has perhaps no influence worth insisting on, but it has on the other two. The way in which a past robbery may weaken the force with which the political sanction tends to prevent a future robbery may be thus conceived. The way in which this sanction tends to prevent a robbery is by denouncing some particular kind of punishment against any who shall be guilty of it, the real value of which punishment will of course be diminished by the real uncertainty, as also, if there be any difference, the apparent value by the apparent uncertainty. Now this uncertainty is proportionally increased by every instance in which a man is known to commit the offense without undergoing the punishment. This, of course, will be the case with every offense for a certain time. In short, until the punishment allotted to it takes place, if punishment takes place at last, this branch of the mischief of the offense is taken at last, but not till then put a stop to. The way in which a past robbery may weaken the force with which the moral sanction tends to prevent a future robbery may be thus conceived. The way in which the moral sanction tends to prevent a robbery is by holding forth the indignation of mankind, as ready to fall upon him who shall be guilty of it. Now this indignation will be the more formidable according to the number of those who join in it. It will be the less so, the fewer they are who join in it. But there cannot be a stronger way of showing that a man does not join in whatever indignation may be entertained against the practice than the engaging in it himself. It shows not only that he himself feels no indignation against it, but that it seems to him there is no sufficient reason for apprehending what indignation may be felt against it by others. Accordingly, where robberies are frequent and unpunished, robberies are committed without shame. It was thus against the Grecians formerly, it is thus among the Arabs still. In whichever way, then, a past offense tends to pave the way for the commission of a future, hence, whether by suggesting the idea of committing it, or by adding to the strength of the temptation. In both cases, it may be said to operate by the force or influence of example. The two branches of the secondary mischief of an act, the alarm and the danger, must not be confounded. Though intimately connected, they are perfectly distinct. Either may subsist without the other. The neighborhood may be alarmed with the report of a robbery, when in fact no robbery either has been committed or is in a way to be committed. A neighborhood may be on the point of being disturbed by robberies without knowing anything of the matter. Accordingly, we shall soon perceive that some acts produce alarm without danger, others danger without alarm. As well the danger as the alarm may again be divided, each of them into two branches, the first consisting of so much of the alarm or danger as may be apt to result from the future behavior of the same agent, the second consisting of so much as they may be apt to result from the behavior of other persons, such others to wit as may come to engage in acts of the same sort and tendency. The distinction between the primary and the secondary consequences of an act must be carefully attended to. It is so just that the latter may often be a directly opposite nature to be the former. In some cases, where the primary consequences of an act are attended with a mischief, the secondary consequences may be beneficial, and that to such a degree as even greatly to outweigh the mischief of the primary. 
This is the case, for instance, with all acts of punishment when properly applied. Of these, the primary mischief never intended to fall but upon such persons as may happen to have committed some act which it is expedient to prevent the secondary mischief, that is, the alarm and the danger, extends no further than to such persons as are under temptation to commit it, in which case, in as far as it tends to restrain them from committing such acts, it is of a beneficial nature. Thus much with regard to acts that produce positive pain, and that immediately. This case, by reason of its simplicity, seemed the fittest to take the lead. But acts may produce mischief in various other ways, which, together with those already specified, may all be comprised by the following abridged analysis. Mischief may admit a division in any one of three points of view, one according to its own nature, two according to its cause, three according to the person or other party who is the object of it. With regards to its nature, it may be either simple or complex. When simple, it may either be positive or negative, positive consisting of actual pain, negative consisting of the loss of pleasure. Whether simple or complex, positive or negative, it may be either certain or contingent. When it is negative, it consists of the loss of some benefit or advantage. This benefit may be material in both or either of two ways. One, by affording actual pleasure, or two, by averting pain or danger, which is the chance of pain, that is, by affording security. And as far then, as the benefit, which a mischief tends to avert, is productive of security, the tendency of such mischief is to produce insecurity. With regard to its cause, mischief may be produced either by one single action, or not without the concurrence of other actions. If not without the concurrence of other actions, these others may be the actions either of the same person or of other persons. In either case, they may be either acts of the same kind as that in question, or of other kinds. Lastly, with regard to the party who is the object of the mischief, or in other words, who is in a way to be affected by it, such party may be either an assignable individual or assemblage of individuals or else a multitude of unassignable individuals. When the object is an assignable individual, this individual may either be the person himself who is the author of the mischief, or some other person. When the individuals who are the objects of it are an unassignable multitude, this multitude may be either the whole political community or state, or some subordinate division of it. Now, when the object of the mischief is the author himself, it may be styled self-regarding, when any other party is the object, extra-regarding, when such other party is an individual, it may be styled private, when a subordinate branch of the community semi-public, when the whole community public. Here, for the present we must stop. To pursue the subject through its inferior distinctions will be the business of the chapter which exhibits the division of offenses. The cases which have been already illustrated are those in which the primary mischief is not necessarily otherwise than a simple one, and that positive, present and therefore certain, producible by a single action without any necessity of the concurrence of any other action, either on the part of the same agent or of others, and having for its object an assignable individual 
or by accident an assemblage of assignable individuals, extra regarding therefore and private. This primary mischief is accompanied by a secondary, the first branch of which is sometimes contingent and sometimes certain, the other never, otherwise than contingent, both extra regarding and semi-public, in other respects pretty much upon a par with the primary mischief, except that the first branch, viz. the alarm, though inferior in magnitude to the primary, is in point of extent, and therefore upon the whole, in point of magnitude, much superior. Two instances more will be sufficient to illustrate the most material of the modifications above exhibited. A man drinks a certain quantity of liquor and intoxicates himself. The intoxication, in this particular instance, does him no sort of harm, or what comes to the same thing, none that is perceptible. But it is probable, and indeed next to certain, that a given number of acts of the same kind would do him a very considerable degree of harm, more or less according to his constitution and other circumstances, for this is no more than what experience manifests every day. It is also certain that one act of this sort, by one means or another, tends considerably to increase the disposition of a man, may be in to practice other acts of the same sort, for this also is verified by experience. This, therefore, is one instance where the mischief producible by the act is contingent, in other words, in which the tendency of the act is no otherwise mischievous than in virtue of its producing a chance of mischief. This chance depends upon the concurrence of other acts of the same kind, and those such as must be practiced by the same person. The object of the mischief is that very person himself who is the author of it, and he only, unless by accident. The mischief is therefore private and self-regarding. As to its secondary mischief, alarm, it produces none. It produces indeed a certain quantity of danger by the influence of example, but it is not often that this danger will amount to a quantity worth regarding. Again, a man omits paying his share to a public tax. This, we see, is an act of the negative kind. Is this then to be placed upon the list of mischievous acts? Yes, certainly. Upon what grounds? Upon the following. To defend the community against its external as well as its internal adversaries are tasks not to mention others of a less indispensable nature, which cannot be fulfilled but at a considerable expense. But whence is the money for defraying this expense to come? It can be obtained in no other manner than by contributions to be collected from individuals, in a word, by taxes. The produce then of these taxes is to be looked upon as a kind of benefit, which it is necessary the governing part of the community should receive for the use of the whole. This produce, before it can be applied to its destination, requires that there should be certain persons commissioned to receive and to apply it. Now if these persons, had they received it, would have applied to it its proper destination, it would have been a benefit. The not putting them in a way to receive it is then a mischief. But it is possible that if received, it might not have been applied to its proper destination, or that the service, in consideration of which it was bestowed, might not have been performed. It is possible that the under-officer who collected the produce of the tax might not have paid it over to his principal. It is possible that the principal might not have forwarded it on according to its farther destination. To the judge, for instance, who is to protect the community against its clandestine enemies from within, 
or the soldier who was to protect it against its open enemies from without, it is possible that the judge or the soldier, had they received it, would not, however, have been induced by it to fulfill their respective duties. It is possible that the judge would not have sat for the punishment of criminals and the decision of controversies. It is possible that the soldier would not have drawn his sword in the defense of the community. These, together with an infinity of other intermediate acts, which, for the sake of brevity, I pass over, from a connected chain of duties, the discharge of which is necessary to the preservation of the community. They must, every one of them, be discharged, ere the benefit to which they are contributory can be produced. If they are all discharged, in that case the benefit subsists, and any act, by tending to intercept that benefit, may produce a mischief. But if any one of them are not, the benefit fails. It fails of itself. It would not have subsisted, although the act in question, the act of non-payment, had not been committed. The benefit is therefore contingent, and, accordingly, upon a certain supposition, the act which consists in the averting of it is not a mischievous one. But this supposition, in any tolerably ordered government, will rarely indeed be verified. In the very worst ordered government that exists, the greatest part of the duties that are levied are paid over according to their destination, and with regard to any particular sum that is attempted to be levied upon any particular person upon any particular occasion, it is therefore manifest that unless it be certain that it will not be so disposed of, the act of withholding it is a mischievous one. The act of payment, when referable to any particular sum, especially if it be a small one, might also have failed of providing beneficial on another ground, and consequently, the act of non-payment, of proving mischievous. It is possible that the same services, precisely, might have been rendered without the money as with it, if, then speaking, of any small limited sum, such as the greatest which any one person is called upon to pay at a time, a man were to say that the non-payment of it would be attended with mischievous consequences. This would be far from certain, but what comes to the same thing, as if it were, it is perfectly certain when applied to the whole. It is certain that if all of a sudden the payment of all taxes was to cease, there would no longer be anything effectual done, either for the maintenance of justice or for the defense of the community against its foreign adversaries, that therefore the weak would presently be oppressed and injured in all manner of ways by the strong at home, and both together overwhelmed by oppressors abroad. Upon the whole, therefore, it is manifest that in this case, though the mischief is remote and contingent, though in its first appearance it consists of nothing more than the interception of a benefit, and though the individuals in whose favor that benefit would have been reduced into the explicit form of pleasure or security are altogether unassignable. Yet the mischievous tendency of the act is not on all these accounts the less indisputable. The mischief, in point of intensity and duration, is indeed unknown. It is uncertain, it is remote, but in point of extent it is immense, and in point of fecundity pregnant to a degree that baffles calculation. It may now be time to observe that it is only in the case where the mischief is extra-regarding, and has an assignable person or persons for its object, that so much of the secondary branch of it as consists in alarm can have place. When the individuals it affects are uncertain, and altogether out of sight, no alarm can be produced, as there is nobody whose sufferings you can see, there is nobody whose sufferings you can be alarmed at. 
no alarm, for instance, is produced by non-payment to a tax. If, at any distance and uncertain period of time, such offense should chance to be productive of any kind of alarm, it would appear to proceed, as indeed immediately it would proceed, from a very different cause. It might be immediately referable, for example, to the act of a legislator, who should deem it necessary to lay on a new tax in order to make up for the deficiency occasioned in the produce of the old one, or it might be referable to the act of an enemy, who, under favor of a deficiency thus created in the fund allotted for defense, might invade the country and exact from it much heavier contributions than those which had been thus withholden from the sovereign. As to any alarm which such an offense might raise, among the few who might chance to regard the matter with the eyes of a statesman, it is of too slight and uncertain a nature to be worth taking into the account. Section 2. How Intentionality, etc., May Influence the Mischief of an Act We have seen the nature of the secondary mischief, which is apt to be reflected, as it were, from the primary, in the cases where the individuals who are the objects of the mischief are assignable, it is now time to examine into circumstances upon which the production of such secondary mischief depends. These circumstances are no others than the four articles which have formed the subjects of the four last preceding chapters, viz. 1. The intentionality, 2. The consciousness, 3. The motive, 4. The disposition. It is to be observed all along that it is only the danger that is immediately governed by the real state of the mind in respect to those articles. It is by the apparent state of it that the alarm is governed. It is governed by the real only in as far as the apparent happens, as, in most cases, it may be expected to do, to quadrate the real. The different influences of the articles of intentionality and consciousness may be represented in the several cases following. Case 1. Where the act is so completely unintentional as to be altogether involuntary. In this case, it is attended with no secondary mischief at all. A bricklayer is at work upon a house. A passenger is walking in the street below. A fellow workman comes and gives the bricklayer a violent push, in consequence of which he falls upon the passenger and hurts him. It is plain there is nothing in this event that can give other people who may happen to be in the street the least reason to apprehend anything in future on the part of the man who fell, whatever there may be with regard to the man who pushed him. Case 2. Where the act, though not intentional, is unadvised, insomuch that the mischievous part of the consequence is unintentional, but the unadvisedness is attended with heedlessness. In this case the act is attended with some small degree of secondary mischief in proportion to the degree of heedlessness. A groom, being on horseback, and riding through a frequented street, turns a corner at full pace, and rides over a passenger, who happens to be going by. It is plain, by this behavior of the groom, some degree of alarm may be produced, less or greater according to the degree of heedlessness betrayed by him, according to the quickness of his pace, the fullness of the street, and so forth. He has done mischief, it may be said, by his carelessness, already who knows but on the other occasions the like cause may produce the like effect. Case 3. Where the act is misadvised with respect to a circumstance, which, had it existed, 
would fully have excluded, or, what comes to the same thing, outweighed the primary mischief, and there is no rashness in the case. In this case, the act attended with no secondary mischief at all. It is needless to multiply examples any further. Case 4. Where the act is misadvised with respect to a circumstance which would have excluded or counterbalanced the primary mischief in part but not entirely, and still there is no rashness. In this case, the set is attended with some degree of secondary mischief in proportion to that part of the primary which remains unexcluded or uncounterbalanced. Case 5. Where the act is misadvised with respect to a circumstance which, had it existed, would have excluded or counterbalanced the primary mischief entirely or in part, and there is a degree of rashness in the supposal. In this case, the act is also attended with a farther degree of secondary mischief in proportion to the degree of rashness. Case 6. Where the consequences are completely intentional, and there is no missupposal in the case, in this case the secondary mischief is at the highest. This much with regard to intentionality and consciousness. We now come to consider in what manner the secondary mischief is affected by the nature of the motive. Where an act is pernicious in its primary consequences, the secondary mischief is not obliterated by the goodness of the motive, though the motive be of the best kind. For notwithstanding the goodness of the motive, an act of which the primary consequences are pernicious is produced by it in the instance in question, by the supposition. It may therefore, in other instances, although this is not so likely to happen from a good motive as from a bad one, an act which, though pernicious in its primary consequences, is rendered in other respects beneficial upon the whole, by virtue of its secondary consequences, is not changed back again, and rendered pernicious upon the whole by the badness of the motive, although the motive be of the worst kind. But, when not only the pernicious consequences of an act are pernicious, but in other respects the secondary likewise, the secondary mischief may be aggravated by the nature of the motive, so much of that mischief to wit, as respects the future behavior of the same person. It is not from the worst kind of motive, however, that the secondary mischief of an act receives its greatest aggravation. The aggravation which the secondary mischief of an act, in as far as it respects the future behavior of the same person, receives from the nature of a motive in an individual case, is as the tendency of the motive to produce, on the part of the same person, acts of the like bad tendency with that of the act in question. The tendency of a motive to produce acts of the like kind on the part of any given person is, as the strength and constancy of its influence on that person, as applied to the production of such effects. The tendency of a species of motive to give birth to acts of any kind among persons in general is, as the strength, constancy, and extensiveness of its influence as applied to the production of such effects. Now the motives, whereof the influence is at once most powerful, most constant, and most extensive, are the motives of physical desire, the love of wealth, the love of ease, the love of life, and the fear of pain, all of them self-regarding motives. The motive of displeasure, whatever it may be in point of strength and extensiveness, is not near so constant in its influence, the case of mere antipathy excepted, as any of the other three. A pernicious act, therefore, 
when committed through vengeance or otherwise through displeasure, is not near so mischievous as the same pernicious act when committed by force of any one of those other motives. As to the motive of religion, whatever it may sometimes prove to be in point of strength and constancy, it is not in point of extent so universal, especially in its application to acts of a mischievous nature, as any of the three preceding motives. It may, however, be as universal in a particular state, or in a particular district of a particular state. It is liable, indeed, to be very irregular in its operations. It is apt, however, to be frequently as powerful as the motive of vengeance, or indeed any other motive whatsoever. It will sometimes even be more powerful than any other motive. It is, at any rate, much more constant. A pernicious act, therefore, when committed through the motive of religion, is more mischievous than when committed through the motive of ill-will. Lastly, the secondary mischief to wit, so much of it as hath respect to the future behavior of the same person, is aggravated or lessened by the apparent depravity or beneficence of his disposition, and that in the proportion of such apparent depravity of beneficence. The consequences we have hitherto been speaking of are the natural consequences of which the act and the other articles we have been considering are the causes, consequences that result from the behavior of the individual who is the offending agent without the interference of political authority. We now come to speak of punishment, which, in the sense in which it is here considered, is an artificial consequence annexed by political authority to an offensive act in one instance, in the view of putting a stop to the production of events similar to the obnoxious part of its natural consequences in other instances. End of chapter 12